It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar... I've got no sound in my mind. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, (laughs) solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Kira Rundle and Michael Steindl. Hi, Kira. Hi. Hi, everyone. Electricity is finally getting some well-deserved attention for its role in greenhouse gas emissions. However... It is, of course, only one part of the emissions picture. Food production is accountable for a huge proportion of emissions and we need to work on strategies to reduce the contribution to climate change of the food that we eat. But do we really have the understanding and information that we need to make food choices that reduce emissions? Dr Adrian Camilleri is part of a team who recently investigated consumers' understanding of greenhouse gas emissions from food production. They then went a step further to examine whether food labelling can inform choices of lower impact foods. Adrian is a senior lecturer in marketing at the University of Technology, Sydney. He holds a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's degree in organisational psychology and a PhD in psychology, all from the University of New South Wales. So Adrian's an expert in the fields of cognitive, organisational and consumer psychology. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me on the show. (laughs) No problem at all. So firstly, you're a psychology and marketing academic. How on earth does that line up with researching greenhouse gas emissions from food production? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I uh, study how people make decisions, particularly consumption decisions. And of course, purchasing food is a consumption decision. And the way this project actually got started was approximately five or or six years ago when I was working at Duke University as a a postdoc there. And uh, Duke University had an amazing initiative. It was called the BAS Connections. And basically, they were giving out funding to research teams that were diverse both vertically and horizontally. And what that meant was that you had to put together a team that was across different faculties in the university and also a team that was across different uh, levels of seniority. And so uh, I helped put together a team that included professors in the business school, such as uh, Professor Rick Larrick, who is a professor of management, and uh, Associate Professor Dahlia Bettino Echeverry, who is uh, an Associate Professor in the Nicholas School of the Environment. And uh, and we also had students working on the team. So we had some students who were in uh, psychology, some who were in environmental management, and uh, also marketing. And so we had that vertical and uh, horizontal composition and we were awarded the grant. And when you put together a team that is uh, as diverse as the one that we had, you really have to uh, sort of look at large global problems that's going to uh, require uh, input from many different fields. So I obviously brought to the table the the psychology, but uh, we also had a diverse range of expertise around the table. And so 
after a lot of discussion, uh, we came to the conclusion that food and consumption of food was a topic that we could all really get behind. And, uh, and so we actually started that year three different projects, each being led by a, a different student. And one of those projects, the one that was uh, led by Sajuti Hossein, who uh, is one of the co-authors on the uh, research paper we're talking about today, um, that became uh, you know, the project that eventually led to this uh, publication this year. Fantastic. It sounds like it was, you had good diversity in terms of gender and culture as well. Exactly. Yes, that wasn't explicit in the uh, in the mandate of the grant, but it, it turned out that way, and that that was a great help as well. So, Adrian, to the crunch issue: How bad is food production for our climate? Yeah. So estimates range, but uh, depending on which report you uh, you read, food food production contributes between nineteen and twenty nine percent of global greenhouse gas mm. emissions, and mm. expected so a quarter that, uh, in round terms. Yeah, and that problem is expected to rise as uh, you know the population increases. Expectations are for 2050 or something like eight to ten billion people, and also as uh, economies and individuals become more wealthy, and global income is expected to triple by 2050. And uh, the correlation there is that as uh, individuals become more wealthy, they consume more meat. Mm. And it turns out that the production of uh, meat and energy, uh, sorry, animal products, contributes the, the greatest amount of food-related greenhouse gas emissions, something like 70 to uh, 80% of total emissions. And of course, here in Australia, uh, we eat the most amount of meat. It's, it's us and the mm. United States at the top of all of the lists. Yeah, so I guess just building up on that, can you comment on what effect switching from a meat-based diet would have? So from a meat-based to a plant-based diet would sounds like have a quite a large impact on personal emissions from food. Right. Yeah, so the amount of greenhouse gas emissions uh, for, let's say, a vegan compared to, let's say, a medium to a heavy meat eater, it's about half. Wow. Uh, so, you know, as we move from a, a heavy meat-eating uh, diet towards a more vegan diet, you know, that number decreases. But uh, you don't have to become a vegan <laughs> to, to have an impact here. For mm. example, in Australia, if, you, uh, if an individual replaced their consumption of uh, red meat, let's say beef and lamb, with uh, what I'll call non-ruminant meat, and I can expand on what a ruminant animal is in a moment if you're interested, uh, something like uh, chicken or even kangaroo, and selecting alternative fish species, we could even have a reduction of about 30% in food-related emissions. So it's not just about uh, you know, going vegan. Uh, this benefit can also be achieved by just moving away from certain foods. It's worth coming back to that room in a moment, but just before we do that, um, you you talked about the, um, the meat-eating and, and the impact of that. What's the spectrum of sources of greenhouse gas emissions in food production? Because it, it's wider than most of us think of, isn't it? Yeah. When we ask people to describe all the life cycle, basically, of, of food production, how does you know, a yogurt uh, get onto your, uh, on your shelf? Uh, most people miss a number of key stages in that process. Um, in particular, let's say if we focus on, on beef, uh, which is sort of the SV, SUV of food there are three main reasons why uh, red meat like beef is uh, particularly bad for greenhouse gas emissions so the first one is um, low feed conversion efficiencies and basically what this means is that it takes something like 
38 kilograms of uh, plant-based protein to produce one kilogram of uh, edible beef. So that's, if you're doing the math, that's just 3% efficiency. And uh, for the sake of comparison, pork has about 9% efficiency and and poultry has about 13% efficiency. So that's one of the first issues. Gee, they're still not high, even though they're (laughs) much better. Second uh, issue I'd mention is basically the digestive process that occurs in in these ruminant animals. And by ruminant animals, I'm talking about things like cows and sheep and goats and, and even buffalo. So basically the way that their digestive process works is that they've got some microbes in their digestive tract and they're decomposing and fermenting the food. And that process produces methane mm-hmm. as a byproduct. And methane is a potent greenhouse gas. And uh, that accounts for as much as 30% of uh, global methane emissions, actually. So, wow. so that's the second one. And uh, the third one there is, is again, uh, the, related to that uh, digestive process. It's just the, the livestock urine and manure, which are also significant sources of methane and nitrous oxide. So these aren't things that typically come to mind mm. when you ask someone off the street, you know, where are the greenhouse gas emissions emerging from? But there's, that's concerned directly with the... the food process itself but mm-hmm. then the uh, the transport uh, deforestation refrigeration uh, all those are factors too aren't they yeah these are certainly factors uh, transporting food uh, is not as large as you might think compared mm. to some of the other issues i've mentioned although uh, i have seen if you look at the lists of uh, sort of the worst foods in terms of greenhouse gas emissions it's uh, beef and lamb are at the top, but also in that category is lobster. And uh, that mm. one seems to be sort of the odd one out. It's certainly not a, a ruminant animal, but it turns out that the, the process of uh, fishing for that particular animal, um, which obviously requires going onto the sea, uh, that actually uh, consumes a lot of uh, energy and produces greenhouse gas emissions as a byproduct. Most of us probably aren't having to cut our lobster consumption too much. <laughs> um, I, I, I hadn't realised before reading the article that fertiliser was a, quite an issue with food production as well. Yeah, and that's another one of the uh, steps that people don't think about when, they, when we ask them to you know, write down the list of stages involved in the uh, production of food. So I already mentioned how much uh, plant-based protein it takes to, uh, to feed an animal like uh, like a cow, but uh, that food in turn needs to be produced, and it's often encouraged uh, with fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And fertilizer in itself is also producing greenhouse gases. So that's another uh, factor that uh, is sort of hidden and invisible uh, behind the scenes that people don't take into account when you ask them. And the deforestation aspect—that's clearing land for agricultural use, is it? Exactly, yes. It's kind of scary if you look at the uh, the land that's been allocated to uh, you know, basically allow cows to wander. And uh, obviously if you're knocking down trees, they're not sequestering carbon dioxide and, and that also contributes. It's crazy, isn't it, when you think how much we rely on growing things for our food. You know, Ideally, our food production could be a carbon sink rather than a source of emissions. Mm. Yeah. All right, so I want to pivot towards this paper, which we'll we'll be focusing on today, uh, which you already mentioned earlier. So the paper was published in Nature Climate Change, and it's titled, Consumers Underestimate the Emissions Associated with Food, but are Aided by Labels. 
So can you talk a little bit about people's perceptions of emissions impact on food production and then also specifically get a little bit into that study and those findings? Mm-hmm. Sure. So we were interested in basically trying to create a figure that would in a very quickly express the degree to which people underestimate the greenhouse gas emissions associated with food production. And uh, the way we did this, we were inspired by some past research by Shazin Atari, and uh, what they had did was they had looked at people's perceptions of the energy consumed by a number of electrical appliances. And the way that they had asked their participants to express their answers was in terms of a reference unit. And the reference unit that they used was a, uh, a light bulb turned on for one hour. So they said, let's say a light bulb turned on for one hour consumes 100 units of energy. Don't get concerned with what that units of energy is. Let's just have 100 as the reference point for a light bulb. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us in terms of this energy units reference point, how much energy do you think, you know, an air conditioner uses, a dishwasher, a microwave, etc. And in that research, what they found is that people greatly underestimated the energy consumed by mm-hmm. a range of appliances. In particular, the, the higher em- emitting or the higher energy consuming products such as uh, closed dry air conditioning units, these were underestimated more so than the, the less um, energy intensive uh, appliances such as a desktop computer, for example. So we were inspired by that research and we thought, let's do the same thing, but let's expand it, not just energy, but also look at greenhouse gas emissions and let's in particular focus on foods. And uh, we were interested in trying to replicate that original research, but also get a sense of, yes, people underestimate the um, electricity and greenhouse gas emissions associated with different appliances, but how much do they underestimate production and transport of food. Mm -hmm. That was our goal. And the way we did this was we uh, recruited a uh, representative sample of American adults. Uh, We started this project while I was in the U.S., so uh, that was our focus at the time. And uh, we asked them to produce uh, 18 estimates for different appliances and also I think it was 18 or 19 different foods. And we asked them to do this in terms of this light bulb reference unit But uh, we also ran the study multiple times and we changed that reference unit. So sometimes we had a a food, I think it was uh, an apple or an orange Mm -hmm. as our reference unit in one of the studies. Uh, But the results were clear and uh, consistent regardless of what reference we used. So firstly, we replicated that original result. So we did find that, yes, people underestimated the energy consumed and the greenhouse gas emissions produced by basically all electrical appliances. Mm -hmm. But the stark finding that was novel to our research was that foods in particular were underestimated even more so. So uh, that that was the main finding that we had from this research. And again, it was the largest emitting or the, the, the largest emitting foods, such as beef and lamb, that were underestimated the most. If you've just joined us, we're speaking to Dr. Adrian Camilleri from the University of New South Wales about food production the carbon impact of that and the possibilities for, for tackling that from the psychological aspects of, of labelling food. So, Adrian, did you come to an understanding of why people underestimate the energy consumed and the, the CHG emissions of food production? Yeah, so we were definitely interested in trying to understand where this uh, 
absence of understanding and knowledge comes from. And one of the theories that we uh, we looked at coming from the psychology literature is something called the illusion of explanatory depth. And what this theory states is that people think they know how everyday objects work, but uh, it turns out if you actually put them on the spot and ask them to explain in detail, um, they can't do it. Mm. And typical examples that have been used in the past have been things like uh, a zipper or uh, the flush on a toilet. If you ask people, you know, how, do, how does the, the zipper work? Um, you know, do you understand the process? Most people would, their first instinct at least would be like, yeah, that's pretty simple. I could explain it. But as soon as you actually put them on the spot, it turns out they have what we might call a folk theory that's basically very simple, fragmentary, and in the end, incomplete and inaccurate. And the same, we think, applies to foods. So we did run some studies that uh, didn't end up in the final version of the paper where we asked people to list the steps that are involved in the production of food. And we compared these to the true uh, steps and people missed a number of key stages in that process. And uh, so one of them, as we mentioned earlier, was an absence of the input of fertilizer, which was used to grow the food that was later fed to the animals. Um, and this is all in contrast, I think, to appliances. So electrical appliances uh, that we use at home, you know, they have energy labels, they're, they're plugged into an electrical outlet, they emit heat, we can hear the fridge on in the background, they're clearly drawing power, and your behavior uh, at home affects your monthly electricity bill. Uh, so uh, it's kind of tangible, the fact that uh, electricity is being consumed and greenhouse gas emissions are being produced, but none of those signals uh, are clear when it comes to food. So, uh, so we were um, not surprised by the results. I guess if you were trying to look at the total life cycle analysis of the appliances, you might strike similar gaps in understanding and uh, about Certainly. the emissions. Yes, and those, those studies have been run. People do have gaps in their knowledge as well. But uh, I think it's not nearly as large as, as those related to food. Absolutely. So why is carbon labelling a good option to help consumers? So one of the things that uh, we thought was, well, there seems to be an absence of knowledge here. And one of the easiest ways to uh, try to improve knowledge is to slap on a, a label. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the, I guess, um, criticisms we, we received initially were you know, uh, let's say calorie labeling, that was a big deal at one point, but the research suggests that it hasn't had much of an impact on waistlines, so how is this any different? <laughs> I think one of the, the key rebuttals to that argument is that you know, if, you're at the, uh, if you're at a restaurant and you purchase you know, a greasy burger and fries, you don't need a label to tell you that that is high in calories. So it's not mm -hmm. actually a knowledge problem in that context. And I think that's, that's different to what we're discussing here because it clearly is a knowledge problem when we give people the opportunity to tell us what they think is the, the true greenhouse gas emissions of products, they, they can't do it. So when there is an absence of knowledge, um, I think labels are a good option. And uh, some of the good things about these labels is that, you know, you, could, you can ignore a label. All right? These labels are there for those who are interested and want to inform their own behavior. So one of the key issues that we were concerned with is that we might have somebody who is trying to reduce their carbon footprint and they're you know, switching off light bulbs at every moment, but that might be 
uh, a low impact change mm-hmm. in behavior compared to changing their diet, for example. So for those who are interested, they can actually look at the label and change their behavior. And uh, if not, then they can ignore it. So what sort of label did you settle on? Yeah, so one of the, uh, the second part of our research project was basically to see if we can design a new label and help inform consumers and at least nudge those who are interested towards uh, lower greenhouse gas emitting foods. And the label that we came up with in the end had two elements. The first is that we translated the, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions metric into equivalent light bulb minutes. So we stuck with that light bulb theme. We thought everybody can understand light bulbs. So let's translate the greenhouse gas emissions into light bulb minutes. So for example, we might have uh, in our studies, we used soups. And so we had beef noodle soup as one option. And a serving of beef noodle soup was equivalent in our study to about 2,300 light bulb minutes. Ooh, so, uh, wow. In addition to the light bulb minutes, we also had a, uh, a green to red evaluative scale that basically had on the green end, lower carbon footprint, on the red end, higher carbon footprint, and then there was a blue arrow pointing to where this product sat on that scale. So you could look at the light bulb minutes equivalent or even quicker you could just look at this uh, this green to red evaluative scale and so we presented uh, these six different soups to uh, a bunch of consumers who came into the laboratory again this is at duke university and uh, half the people who came in to the laboratory they saw this label half of them didn't they were just presented with normal information you would find like serving size and calories and proteins and carbohydrates, etc. And then we just asked people to purchase uh, some soups. And so we did find in the end that uh, those who were presented with the, uh, the label that we had designed, they tended to reduce on average their consumption of beef soup. So did you have a, a range of other meat-containing soups and vegetarian options? Um, yeah, so we, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about what products should we uh, be focusing in on this study. We didn't really want to be cooking people steaks and burgers <laughs> in the laboratory. So in the end, we settled for a range of different soups. And we, in the end, narrowed it down to just a range of vegetable soups and a range of beef soups. And we thought that would be um, pretty easy to work with uh, in the mm-hmm. laboratory environment. Has this been done anywhere else in the world? Are there other uh, food labelling schemes or environmental labelling for food in the rest of the world? Yeah, so there have actually been a number of attempts uh, to design a label. Uh, this is certainly not the first one. Uh, ours is, I think, different in that it tries to translate the greenhouse gas emissions into a metric that is much more relatable, this light bulb minutes equivalent. Uh, a lot of the labels that have been previously designed, they express the greenhouse gas emissions in terms of CO2 equivalent. And you know, uh, if I if I tell you that this product has 123 grams of CO2 equivalent, that doesn't really resonate. Nobody mm-hmm. knows whether that's high or low. So that's why we thought we would uh, also include that evaluative green to red scale to help people recognize whether overall this is a high or low emitting product. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, you made some good strides in understanding how giving people more knowledge or understanding of that emissions impact of their foods can influence their choices. What other factors influence behaviour change? Yeah, it's a great question. So 
obviously knowledge is the, the first stage in, uh, in changing people's behavior, but certainly uh, not the only factor. And uh, some of the things that we've also noticed that can impact uh, people's preferences, certainly around food, of course, familiarity, taste, and cost are very important factors. But um, other factors that are important in this context include uh, social norms. So mm-hmm. these social norms refers to basically uh, the implicit rules in society regarding what is expected or considered to be the right thing to do in the situation. And also people's identity. So some people have an identity that's more pro-environmental and, and pro-social. Uh, other things that other factors include political affiliation, a level of trust in, in scientists, uh, a range of different variables, actually. So once we get past that, that first stage, that first barrier, which in this case seems to be an absence of knowledge, then there are all these other variables that are of interest. Yeah, it's very interesting with the social norms aspect. I guess food is such a universal thing, Adrian, and you know, we found in preparing for the interview today, we really quickly in, got into a very enthusiastic discussion about our own food choices <laughs> and, and even swapping recipes. And miles that. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, it's it's an area where social norms can play a, an even more significant part than, than other aspects of our lives. What what mm. sort of proportion of the community that you're in need to be exhibiting a behaviour for it typically to become a, a social norm that people take on? Yeah, so as I said, the social norms uh, all relate to what are other people doing and uh, and what, what is considered in society to be the right thing to do. And, um, you know, just a quick example of that this, this uh, tendency for people to try to follow the social norms in order to, to fit in, in order to understand what to do in uncertain situations. Um, a great example was uh, provided by the company Opower, in the United States, and basically O-Power was responsible for generating reports that were sent out to households explaining to them their uh, electricity usage relative to their neighbours. And so basically you'd get a letter every month Mm -hmm. or every quarter, and it would say this is how much electricity Mm -hmm. you've used in the last time period, and this is how it compares to all of your nearby comparable neighbours. And this is basically the social norm, what other people are doing. And if you were above, if you were using more than what your neighbours were using, then the research showed that uh, people actually decreased the amount of electricity that they were consuming. Now, of course... It's a concept of nudging too, isn't it? That's right. This is a form Mm -hmm. of nudge. Mm -hmm. Now, the the question is what to do with the people who were already being quite efficient because if Mm -hmm. you just tell them, hey, you're you're not using (laughs) more... They're going to be tempted to (laughs) sleep, aren't they? You don't tell them. So the solution there was to use the other form of uh, social norm, which is what is the right thing to do. And so those who are using uh, less electricity than their neighbours, they actually got um, two happy faces, smiley faces on their uh, bill, and it just said, you're doing great. (laughs) And that seemed to do the trick. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, Very quickly, where can our listeners find more, Adrian? Uh, Yeah, if uh, anyone's interested to follow up on this research and and read the the paper, they can just uh, head over to uh, my website, adrianrcamilleri.com, and uh, there's lots of great stuff there. Thank you very much. We've been speaking to Dr. Adrian Camilleri from the University of New South Wales about carbon labelling of food. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on there, please go to the website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.